Digital Gonzo, episode 91, dated Thursday the 26th of July 2012, The Dark Knight. Where do we begin? A year ago, these uh, cops and lawyers wouldn't dare cross any of you. I mean, what happened? So what are you proposing? It's simple. Kill the Batman. Here's my card. Bruce, this is Harvey Dent. Rachel's told me everything about you. I certainly hope not. You almost told me that we'd be together. Did you mean it? Bruce, don't make me your only hope for a normal life. You're Alfred, right? That's right, sir. Any psychotic ex-boyfriends I should be aware of? Oh, you have no idea. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> We're tonight's entertainment. Well, hello, beautiful. You look nervous. I've seen now what would have to become to stop men like him. The night is darkest just before the dawn. And I promise you, the dawn is coming. And here we go. Go. Come on. This city deserves a better class of criminal. I'm gonna give it to him. No! You'll see. I'll show you. You either die a hero, or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. in the back putzer in the middle of the day alfred not very subtle the lamborghini then much more subtle this is the 10th of 11 batman reviews for digital gonzo culminating in next week's the dark knight rises so far we've covered adam west tim burton bruce tim joel schumacher the comic the animated films the arkham games and the first nolan now we turn our attention to one of the highest grossing films of all time, with the rare distinction of being adored by broad audiences and critics alike. It was the first Batman film strong enough not to need the Batman name to sell it. In the Batcave with me, for more super serious analysis, Joshua Garrity of Ken and Rince. Hello there. Neil Taylor of Game Burst and KDS 2.0. I believe in Harvey Dent. And from Gonzo Planet, Jerome McIntosh. Hello. Paul Gibson. Hello. Sharon Shaw. Hello. And Akila Edwards. I wear hockey pants. Good, good to know. If you haven't listened to it yet, download Digital Gonzo number 90, which is my first full-length audio play, Batman Breakdown. Does anyone remember, and not you, Sharon, because I told you the other day, the code names for Batman Begins and The Dark Knight while they're in the scripting stages and the shooting oh. stages? So that no one would pay any attention to them. Sort of like Blue Harvest with Return of the Jedi. Hmm. Crap. I just watched the video, the extras yesterday and it's gone out of my head. Anybody? No. Okay. <laughs> Batman Begins was called The Intimidation Game. And The Dark Knight was called 
Rory's first kiss. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just two brilliant titles to make you go, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. But uh, significantly, as I said, this is the first Batman film that didn't have the name Batman in it. And I seem to remember back when that first happened, we were like, wow, that's, that's a real turn up for the books. But it was key to establishing the film's identity. And thus, I've started calling this the Dark Knight trilogy. And I suspect other people are going to follow suit. Well, the first thing that struck me while watching The Dark Knight, and this was way back in 2008, this came out. This was one of the last things that Sharon saw while she was heavily pregnant. Do you remember? Yes. You barely made it through to the end because you were getting hot flushes. Was it the, was the last, last Hellboy? Hellboy 2. That's it. That was a good summer, though. That was what I considered to be the last great summer of uh, movies. But I've always uh, mentioned this one before. In 2008, you got Hancock, Dark Knight, Hellboy 2, Iron Man, Kung Fu Panda, Wall-E. Incredible Hulk as well. Incredible Hulk, yeah. Just so many great films back to back. And this just happened to be just before all of the films that started coming out around about the time the writer's strike hit. Hmm. So there's no connection between great writing and great summer blockbusters. And you'd be a fool and a communist to make one. But the step up from Batman Begins is huge and immediate and apparent. And while watching this, I became aware that not not only is it not a kid's film... But it's really not appropriate for kids to to watch. It's not got anything in it that that most kids, I think, would like. Not like eight year olds. Mm, no, it's 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 not fun. Um, that mm. might might sound weird uh, because I love this film, but mm. it, it's not primary. Uh, well, the, it, it's accidentally fun, but it's not yeah. like the Avengers. It's thrilling, but that's not to be confused with fun. Yeah. The Avengers is trying to make you have a good time. It's like, it's full of laughs. It's full of, like, really big, bombastic moments. It's really well written as well, uh, and it's a great movie, but it's a really fun movie. Mm. The Dark Knight is, as the name suggests, dark and serious, and it has a lot of really difficult scenes in there. Um, mm. There are laughs in it. There are a, a couple of occasions where I did laugh hysterically, and there are a couple of occasions where I went, whoa, that action sequence was really impressive. But that's not what makes up the majority of the experience. No. I was um, talking to somebody at work about the uh, these Batman films today, and um, she was saying that she's actually avoided seeing them because... Um, she, everything she's seen about them suggests that they're like really dark and, and quite depressing. And, and I was sat there and thinking, but, but they're really, really good, but I couldn't disagree with her. Yeah. If it's not your thing, then it really, it, there's going to be little to appeal. I remember um, a woman I used to work with said that she'd seen Batman Begins and it was uh, well depressing and she liked it when it was fun and she was citing the George Clooney Batman. So ultimately that... A film as abhorrent as it is to us still does appeal to a lot of people. Um, it's just heartening to know that a billion dollars worth of people found this film repeatedly appealing. Yeah. A lot more appealing than, gosh. I guess it's more the fun factor than anything. Well, well for me, it was just a total shock to the system. I, I remember, because 
I, I went into this with high expectations after Batman Begins because mm. that was a really great movie. But I had no idea how good Dark Knight was going to be. Uh, I consider this one of my favorite films of all time. Not just my favorite superhero movie, just like up there in my top ten films ever. I would even dispute the term superhero about this particular no, Batman. And, uh, yeah, in fact... Most Batman, in fact. I think the, th- the reason why I like this film so much is because The Dark Knight actually has more in common with films like Heat. That's or exactly Talatera. what I was going to say. If you, if you like The Dark Knight and you haven't watched the films of Michael Mann, Heat, <coughs> Collateral, Manhunter... It, it Last feels, the Mohicans. Yeah, it feels like a gritty crime drama that just happens to have superheroes in it. Um, and I insider, yeah. And anyone who knows me knows that I really like dark crime drama. So this film was already going to be on something I loved anyway. Is this film like The Wire? Uh, I would say uh, yes and no. I would say characters-wise, it is, but the way it's filmed is very different. The way certainly the opening sequence in the bank is filmed is yeah. straight out of Michael Mann. Yeah. yeah. Down to yeah. the slight blue tint to everything is very, very heat. Mm. Uh, Did he shoot in IMAX for several scenes in this film as well? Yes. Yeah. 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 Yes. Okay. Um, and that, the and that was bank one of sequence, them. the Hong Kong... Where he's standing on the building in on Hong Kong. On the building. Yeah. And the truck chase. Yeah, the truck chase, while I was... Oh, actually, no. It wasn't even the truck chase. It was when um, the guy who says he can name Batman is being uh, driven through the city and Gordon's trying to protect him. I just... I happened to jump to there in the Blu-ray and, my God, in high definition, that scene is jaw-dropping in terms of detail and sharpness. The unfortunate thing I have with the Blu-ray is that it bugs me when it switches between the IMAX and the rest of it. Is it obvious? It goes from full frame to letterboxed. Really? Yeah. Yeah, I had the same problem. It didn't bother me as much because I I think I just don't notice that stuff. But if you if you notice it, it it sticks and you you latch onto it for a couple of minutes and then it's fine. You forget about it again, and then you look up and it's it's full screen. I'm guessing it's one of those as well. Once you notice it, you will never unnotice it. It's well, not I mean, even that bad. It's you notice it for a couple of seconds after you notice it, and then you get straight back into the film, and it's fine. So <laughs> it's not too bad at all. Well, it's a toss-up ultimately. Does he give you it full frame the whole time, or does and for the scenes in IMAX, just go right? Well, you don't get to see what was in the corners. Yeah, exactly. Or flop it. I frankly, I'd have preferred the option, but eh. Yeah, I, I, you know, I hadn't noticed it. I'm probably going to notice it the second I start watching it again. Sorry. <laughs> ah, sorry. <laughs> Christopher Nolan and his batting average. Last week uh, we talked about Wally Pfister and uh, the, the the crazy amount of uh, mucky movies he did when he was younger, as as a cinematographer or director of photography. We didn't really mention Wally Pfister's absolutely excellent films, 
So I just want to exonerate Wally Fister right now by talking briefly about them. They just happen to intersect with Christopher Nolan's films. Wally Fister, after he did his erotica, was the DP for Memento, Insomnia, Laurel Canyon, The Italian Job remake, Batman Begins, Slowburn, The Prestige, The Dark Knight, Inception, Moneyball, Marley, and The Dark Knight Rises. Uh, if we actually go to Christopher Nolan's back catalogue, which is most of what we just said, Memento, Insomnia, Batman Begins, The Prestige, The Dark Knight, Inception, and The Dark Knight Rises. Now, I'm going to guess that The Dark Knight Rises is pretty good. That... <laughs> is an insane batting average for a director. He's not made one bad film. He's not even made one film that's not really good. I, I have become one of his biggest fans in recent mm. years because, to me, Christopher Nolan has become a mark of quality. Mm. Um, and recently, not so much in his early career, because in his early career he was concentrating on smaller films like Memento and Insomnia, but now he's making like these intelligent blockbuster movies. Mm. Like, I, in a world where Transformers 3 exists, I am not only amazed. exists, but gets onto like the top five highest-grossing films of all time list. Yeah, but I'm amazed that Inception exists. And well, whatever list, whatever your I know some people think it's a tad overrated. I personally love Inception, but that film is full of ideas, and it's clearly someone being creative. But he has a blockbuster budget as well, and mm. like. I'm so happy that Christopher Nolan's career has blown up the way it has because now he's making films that I want to see. So, yeah, Christopher Nolan is a director for me to be proud that I was there at the beginning with Memento and, and I've kind of followed him up. Making films like Inception is, is a great way of proving to Hollywood money men that, look, it actually doesn't have to be this lowest common denominator appealing toy commercial. I mean, just look at the way that, um, say, Battleship, which exactly was that, fared this year against the Avengers, which had a really good script and a smart director. I love that that's happening now. It's taken years since the writer's strike for that fallout to actually write itself. Well, the problem was, I think, that the, the films that got churned out by the people who weren't in the Writers Guild um, were still making money because people still wanted to go and see films. So you then, after that, try and convince a studio that they should pay money for a decent writer when the evidence suggests that they can get away with not doing. Hmm. Okay, so Dark Knight. Gotham is a character in this. Now, it's a character in most... Batman films, but it's a character in this, like, 1930s Chicago is a character in The Untouchables. And actually, that film kind of, it, it feels like it's a distant relation to that. It's, it's what, well, for a start, Batman started in that period uh, in the comics. And there's this sort of certain feel of when Batman and Gordon and Dent get together on the roof, that they're going to try to, to do something drastic to actually save the city from falling to organized crime. And they really focus on the notion that this is a fight that extends far beyond Batman and some criminals. That there are a lot of people's lives at stake and there are a lot of serious people all trying to make this work. Yeah. On uh, both sides. I think for me, um, what I like is that Batman's not just a vigilante trying to fight crime. He's actually trying to change the system mm. that uh, he's operating in. 
so trying to get like he's not doing it as Batman more as Bruce Wayne trying to get Harvey Dent in a position of power because he sees him as like one of the only politicians not politicians you know um, public servants. servants public servants who are actually trying to do something to change the position Gotham is in uh, and Gordon's part of that as well. That's why in Batman Begins, he picked him out from all the cops at uh, the Gotham Police Station as somebody who was he was going to be in contact with. It's about getting the right people in the right positions so he doesn't have to be Batman anymore. Mm. I think it does put an interesting slant on the um, the the notion that uh, did it actually come from year one the idea that the Gotham PD was corrupt or was that in there before I think it was pretty much solidified in year one right I think that's where it pretty much started yeah I think if if you look at the way um, that is kind of portrayed in Batman Begins and in the Dark Knight there's almost an edge of of the reason that the police force is corrupt is because the criminals have got such a hold on the place that it, it's it's like they feel like they can't do anything to change it and, and so they're kind of resigned to that position I mean obviously it's going to be a little bit of um, swings and roundabouts as to which came first but ultimately that, that it, it's almost like it's not really the police force's fault but they're just so overwhelmed the whole point of Batman doing what he does is to show them this can be done you just have to have the will to do it um, and, and then obviously in, in um, The Dark Knight you've then got Harvey coming in with He's, he's it was almost like he's been inspired by Batman, and then Batman is inspired by him, and it's it's quite a nice yin yang thing. Yeah, and going back to what Alex said, it does kind of tie into the whole Chicago thing and the Untouchables. With you know, Batman as a kind of admittedly Elliot Ness was a cop, well a fed, but similar sort of idea. There's a group of them that aren't corrupt fighting this to show people that it can be fought. I like what you said about the yin-yang there, relating to Harvey Dent. I'd never even tweet. <laughs> <laughs> well, at the start, Batman's kind of... He's, he's dark with a little bit of good in the middle, and Harvey's good with a little bit of dark in the middle, and then it swings. Yeah. Okay. And here we go. The Joker as one of the greatest antagonists in cinema. We have rules. I'm not allowed to do that voice in the house anymore. (laughs) I'm not allowed to do it. You said I'm not allowed to do it in bed. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, but I wasn't about to say that in front of everyone. TMI! 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 Oh, my God. Okay. Uh, so to make G-Plex interesting. Um, <laughs> everyone do that voice the second Sharon Walsh. Oh, <laughs> everyone in unison going, want to know how I got these scars. The Joker, as one of the greatest antagonists in cinema, I am racking my brains right now, trying to think of a more fascinating... I hasten to use the term villain, hence the, uh, the term antagonist, than the Joker. The, the person who immediately popped into my mind was Darth Vader. And then I looked at what is now a child's toy in comparison to the Joker. <laughs> Sorry. 
You know what my- just popped into my head right then, yeah? You are a child's <laughs> plaything! <laughs> Another character that springs to mind that I would compare to the Joker is um, Anton Chigurh uh, from yes. uh, oh, No Country yes. for Old Men. And also a bit of Tyler Durden from yes. Fight Club. As I said back when I did the Fight Club review, there is a lot of Tyler in this Joker. And as was said back on that show, there's also a lot of the original Joker, at least the way he was rewritten in the 80s and 90s, in Tyler. It's kind of a, you know, can't fall a horse, a rubberous loop. Well, I think with... Because um, Tyler and the Joker are quite different in terms of their persona, but a lot of their philosophies are very similar. Yeah. Um, the whole idea of chaos being the most fair way to run the world, if you know what I mean. Like, yeah. everyone trying to control everything is just making inequality. The only way for everyone to be equal is if nothing's in control. Mm. Uh, the only other antagonist I could think of that sprang immediately to mind was Hannibal Lecter. Depends how he's played. Yeah, uh, I was thinking Depends specifically Anthony Hopkins, Silence of the Lambs, Hannibal or Lecter. I am going to cite um, Michael Mann's Manhunter, uh, yeah. the wonderful Brian Cox playing him far more seriously. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's debatable as to which one was more powerful of a performance, but I, I do love Cox. <laughs> what? That's what she said, baby. We're talking about the most serious of films. The, the most funny things happen. It's when we did the Alien show. Yeah. So you know why? Things. You know why, Josh? Don't you? Why? why? So, so serious. <laughs> that's that's so gonna be a theme. So I'm Cox, and it's just like Brian Cox going, "I've been thinking about you." <laughs> Okay, so I will say this straight off Heath Ledger had the potential to be one of the greatest actors of his generation and it's debatable that he might actually still be despite being dead because I'm still waiting for someone of his age group to turn in a performance like this Let's see his competition Shia LaBeouf Yeah, never gonna happen who the hell's putting Shia LaBeouf up against him? Well, I, I would put Ryan Gosling and um, uh, Magneto. I've forgotten his first name. Why have I... Michael Fassbender. Michael Fassbender. I would put those two in a similar calibre as Heath Ledger. As would I. Although, I still have yet to see either of them. Properly. Oh, yeah, no. I, I agree with you. I'm just saying that yeah. they have a chance. And oh, yeah. Joseph Gordon-Levitt has the potential... Feasibly. Yeah. I would also say Josh Hartnett has the potential, having seen him perform on stage, I yeah. think he hasn't been given the role yet. We saw him uh, in London as uh, Charlie Babbitt in Rain Man, um, which was really wonderful to watch, actually. Yeah, Hartnett's good. I loved Ledger in 1999 in 10 Things I Hate About You. Nice ride. Vintage Fenders. Are you following me? I was in the laundromat. I saw your car. Came over to say hi. Hi. Not a big talker, huh? Depends on the topic. My fenders don't really whip me into a verbal frenzy. You're not afraid of me, are you? Afraid of you? Why would I be afraid of you? Well, most people are. Well, I'm not. Well, maybe you're not afraid of me, but I'm sure you've thought about me naked, huh? 
Am I that transparent? I want you. I need you. Oh, baby. Oh, baby. Uh, but no, it's, it, a, a Knight's Tale's good. And, and he did various other smaller pictures. Um, Monster's Ball he was in, which uh, he was very powerful in. Brokeback Mountain I have yet to see since Heath Ledger's death. And I was dismissive of it the first time I saw it. But I'm going to give it another go. Uh, ten Things, Two Hands, The Patriot. Oh. Ugh. <laughs> uh, Let's not mention The Patriot, or Four Feathers, or Ned Kelly, or The Sin Eater. Actually, this is relevant. Not great films. Casanova, The Brothers Grimm. And he was waiting for this role in The Dark Knight to really rocket him into the stratosphere. And it's a goddamn tragedy what happened. And that's a simplistic thing enough to say. However, he will go down in history unlike most actors ever, as being the arbiter of a truly incendiary performance. It, it's, I feel like his performance as the Joker has transcended the film itself. Like that, the image of the Joker and why so serious has been ingrained in pop culture mm. years since 2008. Um, I, I can't think of anything else that has had that impact in the last, like, ten years. Maybe Lord of the Rings? Um, but I, it seems to me that, even though I still love those films, the kind of people have not don't talk about them as much as they used to. Harry the Potter. Knight, yeah, actually, Harry Potter probably is in yeah. that kind of category. But, yeah, it's it's so weird that this performance more than not it's not weird i understand perfectly why but you know what i mean like this performance actually has become bigger than the film it's it's in it's it's everyone was in love with this um no whether you were a batman fan or not mm. you could draw a parallel between ledger and um james dean because rebel without a cause became so huge even though, I mean, when you watch it, it's, it's a good film, don't get me wrong, but the I think the legend of it almost has become bigger than the film itself. You could also compare him with River Phoenix. Absolutely. I don't know that Phoenix ever had that one great performance that really, really stood out and captured people's imaginations. Though. That's what I was going to say. He hung around too long with Gus Van Zandt. <laughs> <laughs> Always a bad idea, folks. I mean, he he did some awesome um, awesome roles, but I don't think there was ever one that was really massive. I, th I think probably the closest was Running on Empty. Stand by me. I go yeah. stand by me. Yeah. He's fantastic in that. Although he is, it's a different age group mm. completely. But um, he is similarly magnetic in that. You wanted me. Here I am. I wanted to see what you'd do, and you didn't disappoint. You let five people die. Then, you let Dent take your place. Even to a guy like me, that's cold. Where's Dent? Those mob fools want you gone so they can get back to the way things were. But I know the truth. There's no going back. You've changed things. Forever. And why do you want to kill me? <laughs> I don't want to kill you. What would I do without you? Go back to ripping off mob dealers? No, 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 you, you complete me. You're garbage, you kills for money. Don't talk like one of them, you're not. 
even if you'd like to be. To them, you're just a freak. Like me. They need you right now. But when they don't, they'll cast you out. Like a leper. You see, their morals, their code. It's a bad joke. We've dropped at the first sign of trouble. They're only as good as the world allows them to be. I'll show you. When the chips are down, these, uh, these civilized people, they'll eat each other. See, I'm not a monster. I'm just ahead of the curve. Let's just get down to brass tacks. This joker is very different to... <laughs> fundamentally, completely different to the way Jack Nicholson plays it. And okay, go. Jack Nicholson just turns up and just does Jack Nicholson. Indeed. Right. Well, the thing is, okay. Unlike Neil, I do actually like Jack Nicholson's Joker, but I will give him this: Jack Nicholson doesn't need to try that hard to be mm. the Joker he's playing. Um, whereas Heath Ledger's performance, that I don't see any of Heath Ledger in there. No. Like. I, I can't see him at all. It, and it's not just the makeup. It's his entire persona, his physicality, the way he moves. There's nothing of that guy in there. And it's scary to me that somebody can transform themselves to that degree. It's insane. That's not scary. That's great acting. Yeah. He's hunched over like this twisted creature, and he's, his eyes are constantly roving the room. He's constantly looking at things, taking things in, not mentioning them, and working shit out. This guy is a genius. It is clear that he's got the kind of mind that's on a completely different level to how other... Well, I say genius. He may not even really be that clever. He's just cunning on such an animalistic level, and he assimilates all of this stuff all at once and throws out what he doesn't need. He he's the exact opposite of civilization. I was going to say, I think that's where the parallels with Tyler Durden come in really well, actually, because he he is a genius in his own mind. He's in in his eyes, he sees the world as it truly is. But in actual fact, he's already made his mind up before he even looks at it what it is he's going to see, and he just ignores everything that contradicts that view of things, which is you could argue is what Tyler does. Hmm. There's a scene in the film where Batman's interrogating him and it's one of the more famous scenes in the movie yeah. and Joker reveals that it's not only Harvey Dent that he's captured, it's Rachel Dawes as well. Where's Dent? You have all these rules and you think they'll save you. He's in control. I have one rule. Oh, then that's the rule you'll have to break to know the truth. Which is... The only sensible way to live in this world is without rules. And tonight, you're going to break your one rule. I'm considering it. No, there's only minutes left. You're going to have to play my little game if you want to save one of them. Yeah. You know, for a while there, I thought you really were a dent. The way you threw yourself after her. <laughs> Look at you go. Does Harvey know about you and his little bunny? Where are they? Killing is making a choice. Where are they? Choose between one life or the other. Your friend, the district attorney. Or his blushing bride to be. Oh, 
nothing to threaten me with. Nothing to do with all of your strength. Don't worry. I'm going to tell you where they are. Both of them. And that's the point. You'll have to choose. He's at 250 52nd Street, and she's uh, on Avenue X at Cicero. Which one you're going after? Rachel. And it's in that moment where I realised the true, where the true strength of this Joker character is. Batman could easily kick the shit out of him. He could punch him into a bloody pulp, but it wouldn't make a difference because the Joker truly, truly has absolutely nothing to lose. He doesn't fear pain. He doesn't fear death. He doesn't care about anyone or anything, not even himself. He ha- you can't threaten him in any way. That's terrifying. The only thing that I think this Joker, and in fact all Jokers, might fear is boredom. Oh, absolutely. Uh, that's, he, uh, he says he won't kill Batman because he's just too much fun. And Batman won't kill him because of some misplaced sense of morality. I think also there's an element of, if, if you look at the essential sociopathic nature of the way he behaves, uh, being denied and being ignored and having nobody respond to his games and his um, acting up behaviour would be the one thing that you could hurt him with, I think. Which makes him the epitome of terrorism as well, <laughs> in terms of the fact that if you just ignored terrorists, they'd be like, what? What? But look what we did. Okay, so they're basically three-year-olds. Effectively, yes. He's a genius three-year-old. Yeah. For some reason, his tongue and his lips are always constantly engaged and moving, and when he's talking, he's always moving with his tongue and doing that. And his, his voice goes all over the place, you know, and sometimes it's, it's like this, and, and sometimes it goes down way low, and then sometimes... He's re- like really high and shrill, and sometimes he's like, "Look at me!" And it's like he's a parody of Batman at that stage. It's so. the, the the scars and the makeup. I think are the reason why he's always doing that with his lips mm. and his tongue. It's 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 indicating somebody who is not used to their face being that shape yet. Even oh, it's clearly been that way for a while. Thank you, Sharon. I remembered what I was going to say. Um, there's actually a backstory as to why he's so busy with his tongue and his mouth. Mm-hmm. The reason why he did that is Heath Ledger actually found the prosthetics on his face extremely itchy, and he just did that uh, behind the scenes. And Christopher Nolan saw him doing that and thought, that is creepy. <laughs> Do that in front of the camera. So, there you go. Nice. Uh, there are two major aspects of the Joker which are often overlooked, and it's beyond the red smile, and it's beyond the green hair, and it's beyond the purple suit and the white face. The black eyes with the staring. Mm. And that's something that wasn't present in the Jack Nicholson Joker. But underneath the white face paint was just Jack Nicholson's eyes. And they're, they're crazy. They're like shining eyes. And that's scary as all hell. But these black pits with these sharp little eyes in the middle of them, glaring about the room, fascinating. And the other thing is his teeth. Mark Hamill's Joker, yellow teeth. Joker in the comics, yellow teeth. This Joker, malattended, brownie, yellow teeth. It's disgusting, and it makes us go, 
how could someone let themselves go to such a degree that they don't care that their teeth are about to rot out of their head? And that starts to get us all kinds of shit working away in our minds as to what kind of person this is. And they show up far more in the white face. So, folks, if you're ever going to go cosplaying as a Joker, remember the goddamn teeth. Or forget the goddamn teeth, let's be honest. and Rachel now this is we had to immediately from the very beginning get used to a completely different actress playing Rachel the join never quite worked with me in fact Maggie Gyllenhaal playing Rachel underlined the fact that this was a completely different movie from Batman Begins not in a bad way either it was like it was symptomatic of the step up in quality and I think I think this change makes it harder to go back to Batman Begins with Katie Holmes than it is to transfer to this. I think I believe her more as a civil servant than uh, Katie Holmes. She Absolutely. has that uh, authority and yeah. power. In a, There's a scene where she's um, interrogating the Mafia's accountant and it's like, okay, she's in charge. She knows what she's doing. She's a professional. Mm. Um, I couldn't help with Katie Holmes' character feel like it's a supermodel walking around in a place where she shouldn't be. Um, but, yeah. That's See, I, I didn't go that far, but I... Because I, I, this is one of the things I said when we were watching it. I, I totally believe Maggie Gyllenhaal's a lawyer. And I don't believe Katie Holmes is a lawyer at all. Katie Holmes came across as a, a really nice girl who maybe worked in a homeless shelter on her evenings off and, <laughs> and had just wandered into the courtroom by mistake. Um, and because and, and no one wants her to go away, they just let her stay. Yeah, they thought, you know, she's sweet, we won't tell her to go away. Um, but yeah, they, they were letting her participate out of the kindness of their hearts, but she oh, shouldn't you be. You are being nasty tonight. Um, one scene I really want to talk about, because um, to me this was the scene where I realised that this film was special, mm-hmm. is when they decide to kill off her character. Yeah. Um, be- mainly because when I first watched this, I did not see it coming. Yeah, I, my, my brain had been programmed to think, oh, she's going to be saved. Because I've seen all these films before that eventually she gets saved. But in this film, she's at that point where you think, oh, well, she's going to get saved. She Any second now, any second now, boom, she's dead. And I was like... Jesus Christ, if they're willing to do that, then what does that mean for the rest of the movie? And that scene kind of cast a shadow on everything that happened after that. Because during scenes, for example, when Harvey Dent is holding um, Commissioner Gordon's family hostage, I thought, well, if they're willing to kill off Rachel... Then maybe he'll kill one of their uh, one of his family member. It's not completely insane based on what I've seen in this movie. It was it added a a level of fear and tension throughout the rest of the movie that I hadn't felt in a superhero movie before. 
what mm. really helps with that scene is, of course, we got faked out earlier with, with the death of Gordon. Yeah. Or the yeah. non-death of Gordon. Yeah. So that plays, yeah, oh, she'll be fine, she'll be fine. Although, I did know about that scene going in to see the movie. I, I got spoiled, so oh, I, that happened. Who did oh. that to you? Unfortunately, a review podcast. Right. Who I have since, because of that, no longer listened to. I yeah. feel like there's a lot of meta-commentary in this film as well. Mm-hmm. Um, like, there are a few scenes where I feel like it's not just talking about the events in this film. They're talking about the relationships and the mechanics of these characters. Um, Joker, towards the end of the film, says, uh, this is what happens when an unstoppable force meets an unmovable object. I think we're destined to do this forever. And he's not just talking about Nolan's universe. He's talking about the entire nature of these two characters. One thing that I uh, that is very significant for me about Rachel, and this is the interesting thing, they could have killed her at the end. They could have killed her and had Batman, like, you know, the, the, the camera goes up and Batman shakes his fist at the sky and goes, Damn you, Joker! Uh, and that would have been uh, an unexpected sad ending uh, on Her Majesty's Secret Service where it's it's sad but it's the sort of thing that sort of feels right at that place but doing it in the middle it felt at that point like the film was actually kind of about to end yeah. and then we got 45 minutes more film and I remember people bitching about that fact and going oh it went on for too long and I was like <laughs> Are you insane? We got Batman 2.5. We got extra movie. We otherwise wouldn't have got the whole Harvey arc that they could easily have stretched out for another film. Mm. I was expecting that because I, I knew... Um, I can't remember the actor's name. Aaron Eckhart. Aaron Eckhart, yes. yes. I knew he was playing Harvey Dent. I didn't know they were doing the Two-Face bit. They, came, they kept that very well under wraps. And they played no. it really well in the courtroom scene. <clears throat> Because in the comics, he was attacked with acid in the courtroom. Yep. Became Even happened to Tommy Lee Jones. Yeah. And they played that with the... Gun. The guy threatening him with the gun. Yeah. And it just carried on. It's like, oh, well, they're saving that, fine. And then this hits. Yeah. It was like, and Ooh. again, that could have been like, you know, that happens at the end of the film. It sort of cuts to Harvey Dent and he's uh, got his the, the thing on his face and he sort of rips it off and boom, his two-face, end. But no, they actually made Harvey's <coughs> arc key to this film. And it takes its time. Now, interestingly enough, it's only about ten minutes shy of Batman Begins. It feels a lot more long and epic, though, because it takes yeah. place o- really mostly only in Gotham. And it's got this pacing, which means that everything actually happens really, really quickly. So they can get a lot done. It felt very... It felt this is a weird thing when I watched it it felt a lot longer yeah. it's probably because of the size and the scope and so much going on the way it's filmed and everything going on as well as Joker Two-Face Rachel everything's felt bigger even though it wasn't as long it was pretty much only a little bit longer and it's far far bleaker yeah which will which lead, you know it contributes to it feeling longer I think the essence of everything that that happens around that turning point, though, um, with the explosions, ties in with the uh, with Joker's plans of proving how people will react when chaos and, and chaotic circumstances get thrown at them. Um, because if you, you look at the way everybody's arc kind of moves at that point, they all get 
got jammed into these situations that um, that the way Joker sees humankind, he would expect them to just dissolve and go to pieces. In Rachel gets put in a situation where um, she's, you know, she. she Harvey's telling her that they're they're coming to rescue her, and she's she's saying that, that that's not what she wants. She wants to sacrifice herself, and she ends up doing that anyway, not through choice but through circumstance. But that gives her character an incredibly powerful boost, and it you know very much takes away um, the whole you know the girlfriend is just the flag. She's there to get captured and and you know move things along. Yes. Um, it, it gives her something very powerful to do simply by virtue of the fact that that she dies. Um, Batman wants to do the selfish thing at that point. He's he's trying to save Rachel, but by circumstance he is forced into saving Harvey. And he doesn't at that point when he realises Rachel's not there and she's elsewhere. He could just go, oh for fuck's sake, turn around and walk out and leave Harvey. And he doesn't. He then goes out of his way to to save Harvey. And and even what happens to Harvey at that point, you know, he gets this um, the the injuries that get foisted on him, the fact that he loses Rachel, the, the circumstances that force him into a scenario where um, you'd expect him to go completely black and and completely um, you know all out for revenge and nothing else but he does still try and retain that little bit of the the goodness in him by by giving himself this binary choice whenever he has the option to do something bad the other thing that's significant is that Rachel chooses him how many other films can you think of where the leading heroine decides not to go with the obvious hero? Well, I would argue that Harvey Dent is the obvious be, hero. Would yeah. be the hero, yeah. Well, how many films just bring someone in to be the obvious hero who's not the guy in the title? Mm. Although, and again, if you look at it from a, a sense of these people being real rather than them simply being um, comic book ciphers, you look at what Rachel's dedicated her life to, it makes perfect sense that she would go, you know, they're, they're both very heroic men who want to do the right thing, but Harvey has done it in a way that works with the establishment, which is something that Rachel herself has chosen to do. So it makes perfect sense that she would go with that and not with what Bruce has decided to do, which is going outside the establishment. repeatedly clear over and over again that what the Joker wants is for Batman to take off his mask knowing that he can't do that knowing that he has to outlast this that he must either quit or keep fighting he can't just unmask himself because if he unmasks he is no longer a symbol he's no longer Batman really it's an interesting point for the Joker to keep making because he never unmasks himself no. He he makes up stories about his, you know, why he is who he is, and he goes out of his way to conceal who he is. So it's a bit of a nerve, really, for him to say, you know, why can't Batman be honest about who he is? Well, you can't. 
One of the most fascinating aspects of the Joker's character is that I... he's totally inconsistent. He's a flipping hypocrite. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, I don't know if that's his real plan at that point. I th- to me, this whole thing was a ploy for him to gain control over Gotham City, and the best way to do it is to trick the mobsters into thinking he's on their side and then flip it around at the last minute and really show Gotham what he is really about. Well, he certainly doesn't want Batman to stop, especially yeah. by the middle end. He, As he says, he finds Batman fascinating and endlessly entertaining, unmasking him, and it's, well, that, that's my favourite game, stops. Um, when he uh, talks to Two-Face in the hospital, he mentions Gordon, he mentions the cops and the mob, they're schemers. He doesn't mention Batman. He doesn't want Batman to be a target for anyone but him. He's keeping Batman for himself. Well, in the interrogation scene, he says, you complete me, um, as if, like, Batman gives him purpose. Um, and in a weird way, you know, in the only way Joker can, I think he's in love with Batman yeah. in some ways. Um, because he gives him a reason to exist. Definitely obsessed. I don't think it's romantic love. I don't think the Joker can feel romantic love. Yeah, you, you know what I meant. I meant in a more abstract way. Yeah, I didn't no, mean, no, I, I yeah. uh, it's, it's kind of like Voldemort in terms of the fact that he is so far removed from what people would consider humanity that this intensely strong emotion that he feels could be interpreted as love. It's certainly likely to be the closest he gets to it. Yeah. Uh, Batman validates his existence in a way that no one else does because he is quite so spectacularly theatrical in the same way. When he talks about corrupting Harvey Dent, he talks about bringing him down to our level. Mm. He considers Batman and him to be on the same level. Like, both of us are insane in our own ways. Well, he says that to him in the um, in the interrogation cell, doesn't he? Don't act like everyone else, or don't act like you think like them. You're not. Yeah. Another inconsistency, um, purposefully placed. He pleads innocence to crimes he's obviously at the heart of to two people. To Gordon, he's you know I was in here all the whole time, and he's it's as if as if Gordon's. Completely out of order with suggesting that the Joker was anything to do with all of this that's going on. That, again, though, that is a, a, a typical... Oh, I said typical. Um, it is um, Textbook. a sociopathic... Homicidal. Yeah, all right. Okay. <laughs> um, that's um, uh, kind of a, a sociopathic behaviour to, to have that disconnect between things that you've done that you can't um, integrate that you would have done them. Does that make sense, or do I need to rephrase that? It's a, pretty much a trademark of most of the Jokers, especially in the comics. He would say, it wasn't me, Governor, or something mm. like that. He always plays up on that at some point, saying it wasn't me when it was obvious it was him. And when he's talking to Dent in the hospital, he's like, you know, I, you know these guys are the schemers. I just do things and it's like just put what he did to Dent directly on paper hold it up to Harvey and say had you tied up in a warehouse full of explosives primed to explode so that you would die 
He did that on purpose to fuck you. And, and he has the gall to go, wasn't me. But again, it's, it's a child thing. It's a, yeah. it's a toddler yeah. thing to do. You do something bad, you wish you hadn't done it, and therefore you deny that you did it, even though the evidence, the biscuit crumbs are all still on the floor around you. It's pretty blindingly obvious that you did it. And yet he puts all of his faith in chaos, gives Harvey his coin, puts Harvey's gun to his own head. Says, go for it. He's an agent of chaos, and chaos will back him up. And it does. There is one point in this that Two-Face actually effectively keeps flipping until he can kill the person he wants to kill, and that's Salvatore Morone. But in this, he has every reason, every inclination, and every fibre of his being wants to kill the Joker. But because the coin comes up heads, he lets him live. Well, even with the continuing to flip, I assume you've been in the car... Yeah, well, he flips it for Sal, and then he flips it for his driver, which is like a second chance, really. And it kind of, but it does fit with the rules <laughs> as they are. About chaos, it's fair. The thing with with the way uh, Joker initiates those scenarios, though, where he's got—I mean, he that where he puts the gun to his head and, and, you know, he's basically saying to Harvey, go on, kill me. Um, And also when he stood in front of Batman on the bike and and he's saying, come on, hit me, hit me. Batpod. It's Batpod, sorry. He's, I I don't think it's the case that he's, he has faith that chaos will let him live. I think he genuinely will go with whatever the outcome is. He just wants something to happen and he will respond to whatever it is that happens. Um, specifically with the scenario with Harvey Dent, I feel like at that point, if Harvey Dent kills him, he's won. Because yeah. Harvey, De- Harvey Dent has become exactly what the Joker wants him to be. Mm. Um, and also we were talking about him talking about schemers and people planning. I think what he's talking about is the idea of controlling events. Everything he does, he plans, plans for things, but everything he plans is to create anarchy, to create chaos. He isn't trying to control the world. He's trying to liberate it in his eyes. Um, it's, it's not about controlling the world. It's about creating that madness that he seeks. The thing is, though, that and I, I agree with you there. That ties in with his whole speech about, um, you know, that it's it's all part of the plan. And even if the plan is horrible, everybody's fine with that because it's all part of the plan. Um, but I think it's interesting that you use the word liberate because although. It could be argued, and certainly in the case of Tyler Durden, that's what he's trying to do, is is create this liberation for society by getting them to accept that chaos is there and, and, you know, stop trying to petition it out into nicely ordered little pieces and think that you can control it. The Joker wants to terrify people. There is no liberation in in his behavior. That might be, um, you know, freeing people from control might be sort of his ultimate back-of-the-mind ideal, but the things he does in no way give people any sort of freedom. And it seems, I suppose, the ultimate expression of his insanity that he can't see that. He's also, uh, in the same way that he throws himself into the, the, the mouth of chaos there, he is ready to die at a moment's notice. It seems as though several years ago he decided that it didn't matter whether he lived or died from that moment onwards and just took life as it came to the point where he is utterly fearless 
I think you might be right about the boredom thing, actually, because that that would fit in with that. The you know the idea that any time he could die, and that's fine, just as long as it's not as long as things aren't dull. He's not the least bit scared when he put when he puts Dent's gun to his own head, and when Batman throws him off a building, he's laughing. He finds it hilarious that he's about to die, and uh, he's almost pissed off when Batman actually saves him. Uh, because it's it's because it's Batman sticking to his rule, and if he hadn't saved him, then that would mean that as the Joker dies, he's won again. Every time he dies, he's won. He is a complete nihilist, really. Mm. Mm. It's just nothing, Lebowski. Nothing. <laughs> no, obviously not. Just as long as he doesn't feel exhausting. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He strikes me as being somebody who has been ignored. So either uh, a a two-bit hood or somebody who had no criminal background before he went mad because, Mm. um, you know, as as, um, Gordon points out, they've got no record of him, no prints, no nothing. Somebody Mm. who felt that he was marginalised in his life, that he was ignored, that he wasn't being paid enough attention to, had um, ideas beyond this station that he was you know far meant for far greater things and how much greater do you get in Gotham than taking on and declaring yourself the equal of the Batman it's a masterstroke that we never find out Let's talk briefly about Batman, because we haven't talked about him, and it's the biggest movie he's ever been in today. Um, But there's so much else. Because that's the thing. Batman's kind of a big player in this film. He's a a significant element to the general story, and he drives the plot. But this is not a film where Batman jumps down and beats up criminals. That's happened in Batman Begins. We've just established that that... You know, occurs, and it sort of occurs at the beginning. But he doesn't seem to be good at it. It's changed because his suit has changed. Yeah. In terms of um, his suit could take a lot of punishment. But right at the beginning, in that very first fight scene, it shows that it's a bit slow, it's a bit plodding, and he can only he has problems turning his head in it, and that's why mm-hmm. the suits changed, and that makes it even difficult for him to fight goons if they've got guns. Yeah. And it seems to be unlike. The previous one in begins where he'd go around taking up people with guns. Everybody's got guns now, so yeah. he's has to kind of lunge in there and and be worried about getting shot and take people down quickly. Because um, isn't the seat supposed to be lighter? But it's more vulnerable to gunfire and knives, I think. Uh, the adapted suit, yeah, yeah, it's got plates which uh, have more hin- more spaces in between that he can get shot or stabbed. Um, also dogs turn up repeatedly in this there's a wonderful notion that when that Bruce has become this feral animal in Gotham and that he will have dogs set on him because people don't want to tangle with him face on and dogs are a problem for Batman also the, in this. the dogs are a representative of the Joker as well because he's like he is a wild dog in the way he behaves um, mm. and also his little joke about I'm like a dog chasing cars I wouldn't know what to do with one if I ever caught it 
And another one is that the, this feral creature that uh, Bruce is, um, he's Zorro. The fox. Who was always the fox. And so that's, you know, having dogs sent off to him is emblematic of the fact that he is this guy out to help people, and yet he is being hounded. Literally. Thank you, folks. I'm here all week. <laughs> and I thought my jokes were bad. I think the other thing with, um, with Batman, um, when you, you referred to him as a, a bit player in his own movie, he's kind of, if you, if you look at it, he's kind of shadow relief in this. All the other characters and all the other events are the things that shape the film, and Batman is the shape that's created in the middle, where, you know, the space the where they are not. Yeah, Gotham appears to have changed, and you know how I said he, he doesn't seem to be that good anymore? They're meeting in a brightly lit multi-story car park. There's nowhere for Batman to hide in the rafters. He can't leap down. No one's scared of him anymore. No, they are scared of him. That's why they're, they're meeting in the brightly lit car park. So they, they're isn't cautious it? of him, but they're, it's not—it's not the same as it is in in the Arkham games or um, uh, or Batman Begins. With like, it's the Bat, and they're all sort of you know, like you know, tilting with their with their guns. They're they're overarmed and overprepared for him. He's not new anymore. He's this obstacle for them to get round, and he's driving them crazy. But at the same time, the sloppiness of that first time he turns up with all the crappy um, copycat Batman um, it, it just shows that Bruce is, is kind of getting somewhat out of his depth at this point and, and certainly oh, frankly in the comics this is the point where he needs allies mm. and he just he doesn't have any he, he actually says something like you know Batman can't afford to have friends well he should I think uh, Christopher Nolan was trying to inject some reality um, in the scenario, the fact is, a single man cannot fight all the crime in Gotham. Yeah. And it, I think Christopher Nolan was trying to say that the only way Batman can really help is trying to get Gotham in a position where it kind of helps itself. Um, mm. He needs Harvey Dent. Like, it's not just like. Um, oh, it would be nice to have a, a good DA. He needs Harvey Dent in the position because it makes his job so much easier. He needs Commissioner Gordon to be in the position he is. It, it's, it's not... He, he can't do this on his own. If, if the city doesn't start, you know, protecting itself from, the, from this stuff, then all his efforts are for nothing, really. The truck chase... Again, linking this in with heat, and uh, a lot of practical effects used in this. I'm not going to go on at length about it. It's a very visual, very visceral, impactful scene. Um, and it's, it's very exhilarating, and it's a great way of putting a big section in the middle of a film so that it, it feels like massive cogs are moving. And it struck me that there isn't any music during the truck scene. I, you know, I've listened to the soundtrack over and over again, and there's all these sort of, you know, incredibly bombastic bits of music by Zimmer, which I associate with that kind of imagery, but there's no music. It just it explores the soundscape and the crashes and crunches and the roar of the vehicles, and it's oppressive, masterfully absent of a soundtrack. Which, by the way, is even better than the soundtrack for the first film. It elaborates on it, and it, it's like the second movement of an opera. It's, I especially like the Joker theme, which isn't really a theme, it's a sound. It really kind of just adds to the character. 
it just is one very slight slide up and it's just like you know this person is really bad you start to associate it with bad things are gonna happen yeah every it's not it doesn't just play when the joker is on the scene it plays when any whenever something really terrible is about to happen we were talking about the truck sequence but a moment that happens after that uh, is when um, Batman is racing to get to Rachel who's strapped up yeah. with bombs and Harvey Dent as well the music that plays over that sequence is brilliant because it's cutting in with all these different themes um, that you've heard all the way through the series uh, kind of like Begins a musical praise and the uh, Dark Knight um, it was just great having that underline everything but then when you cut to the Joker you hear the and when you've got Batman racing to it the music's really high tempo and it's you know really powerful but then when it's Rachel it's that piano playing the conversation between Rachel and Dent you have that like really somber piano playing it was just masterfully put together piece of music completely agreed And then there's also a little bit for the Joker of broken piano. It just goes. Dum, 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 dum. 
which Hans Zimmer then went on and did full-on broken piano for Sherlock Holmes. It's just a great way of showing that the Joker is broken on a fundamental level, and irreparably so. You are never going to get a beautiful tune out of the Joker. It's always going to be twisted. Dr. Scarecrow, Batman, Harvey Dent, Harvey Dent. Aaron Eckhart uh, doesn't get his views in this film, I don't think. Because no, it's because of ledger being well, so incredible. Yeah, that's yeah. The thing. If, if this character, um, this vi- uh, antagonist, was in a film on his own, I think loads of people would be going on about how great a Two-Face he was. But because Ledger's there and he gives one of the best performances ever, um, it kind of makes you forget him a little bit. But and I, also I because they hid like Two-Face so long that um, yeah. it's, it's kind of like our brains forget that he's in it. Like last week, both Neil and I forgot that Two-Face's origin was part of The Dark Knight. It was just it's the way. Shame because it's it's one of the best parts of the film for me. Uh, but the way yeah. that character evolves, it's really organic. They don't. He's a bit different from the comic book portrayal because he's not really a split personality. It's more about be- becoming uh, taking on this philosophy of how to mm. live life. It's like live life by chance. So it's a slight. Um, a slight change on the way um, Joker sees the world. The Joker is all about just complete chaos, whereas Two-Face's character is about having that 50-50 chance. He's more like an exceptionally angry binary dice man. Yeah. It's, yeah. And it's kind of layered in throughout the film. The dualities. Because mm. you've got the you know, order chaos, Batman Joker thing going on. The half and half thing as well. There's a, a triple uh, repetition of halfway to Hong Kong, halfway to Mexico, halfway to hell. Yep. Um, film. Two decisions. Uh, two yeah. people with the bombs. Two fairies. He feels like half a man at the end. Yeah. More middle end. There's umpteen references through it, not necessarily blatant ones, hmm. which you I, know makes it far better than say Batman Forever for that. Oh Christ. Oh, oh it's <laughs> different, different animals completely. Yeah. I also like that it was the subtle turn. It was literally, you see the main accident when he gets um, rescued and half his face gets burnt. You see him in, in there with no sound and just the expression on his face. You see Joker planting the seed and you see him just slowly turning into this absolute monster of a man. I don't think he... But that's the thing. I don't necessarily see Harvey Dent as a villain or an antagonist, for that matter. Mm-hmm. He kind, he's a victim in this film. He yeah. is... He's just completely destroyed. I mean, I don't see him having any guy. plans of getting out of the scenario he's in. I think he's just trying to get revenge on the people that just he considers to have destroyed his life. And then he might as well just lay down and die after that. Well, in purely practical terms, within a few hours of being away from the hospital, he would succumb to infection. Yeah. That's why Two-Face couldn't last as a character. One thing I also like um, is that they don't... It's not like this sudden... Harvey Dent all the way through this film is a good, honest man, but it's not like there's no hint whatsoever of this potential... break down mm. because there's that scene where he's interrogating one of Joker's goons in the alley and you can mm. see that potential 
Like, ultimately, I don't think he was ever going to shoot that guy. But you can see, okay, this guy isn't perfect. And no one is. And I think that's Joker's point, is that no one is truly, you know, a, a knight in shining armor. There's always an element of, I, I, you could go bad at any moment. This relates to the Paul Dini uh, written um, Two-Face episodes of Batman the Animated Series where there's this character that gets pulled out of Harvey during therapy called Big Bad Harvey. Uh, this is before he becomes Two-Face, which is an angry, cold aspect of his character. It's pretty much like that aspect of him completely takes over. There's this really sad moment where... Um, he wakes up and Bruce has left his coin for him. And for a second, he's looking at one side of it um, because he gave it to Rachel and it's the good side. And he turns it around and it's burned to a cinder underneath. And that's when he snaps and breaks because that was the last possible hope that he had in his life. And it's just gone. And it's... I, I, don't know, I don't know if we spend enough time with Harvey to really care about him as much as I ended up doing to really justify that, but I feel really sorry for him and I feel really sorry for Rachel in this film. They didn't deserve what happened to them. Even when he snaps and goes that far with uh, Gordon's kids, that's, he is more of a tragic character than a villainous one. I feel sorry for Gotham as a whole uh, for his loss as a... Uh a good uh, champion for justice in that city because yeah. he was doing a good job. He al he locked up um, almost all of the mob's middlemen, middlemen at one point, um, and that was, you know, that's an achievement. Uh, can you imagine what could have happened if the Joker never showed up and Batman and him were cleaning up the city? Gotham might have, you know, ended up being a halfway decent place to live. Um, but no, that, that's been taken away because the Joker just completely destroyed him. One of the things that's really the most impressive about this pair of films is that everything was set up in Batman Begins. The Tumblr, the Batsuit, all of the characters, Lucius Fox, Alfred, Bruce, Rachel, all of this stuff, all of the pieces were laid down on this board so that when it starts up and it cuts to... Lieutenant Gordon standing outside the uh, next to the uh, the bat signal. We don't need to know what's happening because everything was set up in the first one, and you absolutely have to have seen the first one to get all of this complexity in the second one. But so little is introduced that's like, hey kids, you got. I mean, basically the bat pod is the only nod to extra stuff and gadgets. I mean, I suppose there's there's a bit of sort of flying around and firing stuff off but it's it's not really made a big deal of it's just Batman's arsenal but there's none of this kind of and this was the beginning of the Batmobile anymore it's it's all just focused on the storyline which is so good a move The bit with the ferries. I've had a lot of complaints about this bit. That it was a bit too much. It's it's a big seems like a big social experiment. It's not too dissimilar to stuff that happens earlier in the movies. It's stretched out. Um, one thing that Sharon and I noticed while we were uh, watching it, it's not entirely clear what he's trying to do uh, and what he's trying to prove. I mean, it appears 
uh, someone please explain it. It appears, from what I can tell, that he wants the regular people to panic and press the switch that they believe will blow up the boat full of prisoners, and he wants the prisoners to do the same and press the switch that will blow up the <laughs> regular people, thus proving that they are down to his level and they are animals and they will kill to keep themselves alive. It is an established... Um, social experiment as well. Although, to be um, fair, they usually do it with electric shocks, not bombs. Yeah, electric shocks, and it's usually prisoners and guards. Yeah. Or two people locked in separate cells. One's got the button that'll shock the other one, and the other way around. But it's kind of different because there's uh, the amount of peer pressure that comes with everybody being terrified they're going to lose their lives versus press this button and you will hurt someone to the point of death. Just because you've been told to, that's complete. That's a completely different scenario. Fact, the one I was thinking of is the Stanford prison experiment. Basically, you've got a group of guards and a group of prisoners. To see how this pans out with people in those two roles, and it usually goes very badly with the guards doing. Yeah, no, I, I get yeah. what you're saying, and I've, I've, I know about the experiment. But what I'm not seeing is no one was placed in a position of power. This is not a case of you have the power. I mean over yeah. these people it's more a case of do we press this button and kill everyone or not true yeah and the, the, here's the interesting thing they start trying to vote about it which is trying to organise the chaos which means that had they actually decided to press the button it would have been through organisation and democracy <laughs> not where? through chaotic scrabbling at each other in an bid to get to the button to press it whereas the prisoner's big scary guy gets up and goes give me the button and lobs it out the window yeah. which is entirely random and an act of chaos so chaos actually liberates them so and that's not what the Joker wanted so I, I don't really get this experiment I well that's the whole thing he thought that Joker thought they were just gonna someone's gonna hit the button and it's all gonna go nuts essentially yeah. Joker didn't win and that was the whole yeah. purpose of it mm, yeah I still think it's wrong I still I reckon one of the normals people would have still got nerfs on it bang yeah. and well, both fairies would have blown that's up the, that's no I, I disagree actually for it right the is he the the Governor of the prison, or something. The um, the guy who's got the switch on the prison boat. Yeah, so the warden. Yeah, the warden. That's it. Girl. Yeah. You look at his face when the big guy takes it off him. He is relieved. It's it, it, the the normal people want it to be done, but none of them wants the responsibility of switching the switch. My think. My problem is that I don't think everyone everyone on a ship would have that point of view and I think there would be somebody who would be willing to do it especially on the ship full of mass murderers um, criminals being a superstitious and cowardly lot <laughs> well no I mean like I get it that civilians not are, might not be yeah, yeah. I get that civilians might not be willing to take a life, but when you've got a boat full of people who do it for a living, um, it, it's kind of it doesn't make sense to me that they wouldn't do it immediately. I know there were policemen guarding it, but look how many criminals there are on that boat compared to how many people policemen there were. They could have easily overwhelmed them. 
Um, well, given that pr- part of the point of being in prison is that it, it's supposed to rehabilitate you, if there was one of them that was willing to murder an entire boat full of civilians, including children, which I'm sure they would have known were, was on that boat, then there's their prison's not working very well. See, it's a good job Daz did get away in the first one. He didn't. Yeah. It. <laughs> yeah. <like> he, he, <laughs> um, ultimately, it's it's a social experiment that everyone on both boats passes in terms of the fact that the filmmakers portray them, including the hardened prisoners, as all being human enough to recognise the right for everyone to live. And obviously, they only survive because Batman stops the bomb at the other end as well. Yeah. Because otherwise, they would have all gone. Because the Joker doesn't like to lose or be bought. Well, that was the element of, of pressure, and it was the the time limit of if if you don't press the button, you both go. You both go, yeah. I feel um, a part of that scene uh, links into something the Joker said earlier in the film, where he says, um, "I'll show you these civilized people; they'll eat each other." And I think he, that whole sequence was almost him trying to prove something to Batman. Mm. Yeah, no, that, 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 on paper it looked like he wanted everyone to be scrabbling to get to that button so that they could, so that they could fight tooth and claw to murder the others for their own survival. He wanted to make them out to be animals. He went about it in exactly the wrong way then. Because he, they were in a civilised scenario and they were given one thing but there's no immediate effect to it. They don't see what's happening. They don't, um, you know, they, they can't hear what's being said on the other boat. There's no immediate effect for them. If he'd put them all in a room together, starved them for three days and thrown, you know, some food in there, he'd probably have got exactly what he wanted. It's because like that's, a, that's a more immediate scenario. Neil, go. <laughs> I was going to say, it's like earlier in the film. Is it Gamble's... I don't want to say hideout, because it wasn't but Gamble's place where the Joker turns up yeah. to be dead. He kills Gamble... And he's got the three bodyguards there. He breaks a pool cue, chucks it on the floor and says, we're having tryouts. But there's one space left. Just chucks it down and leaves it there. We never actually see the, what happens. Make it. That is so unbelievably dark. <laughs> yeah. For a, for a 12A rated film, I am amazed this got through. Because, I mean, just at the same time, he rips Gan... Well, I don't know what he does to Gamble, but it's so horrible they couldn't show it. Which is good. <laughs> That's why it works. Yeah, thank yeah. And yeah, absolutely. Take note, yes. Eli Roth. You can accomplish a lot with implication. Absolutely. Yes. Great potential for aggressive expansion. There are two bum notes in the film that I can think of. Um, one is Christian Bale's voice, which goes beyond eleven. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> especially at times which are actually it doesn't aren't called for. There's times when he's just speaking to Lucius Fox about the phone signal bouncer off a device, and he's speaking at him like this. And Lucius should just say, you know, I know who you are, Mr. Wayne. You can just talk to me like a normal person. Um, <laughs> and please. And it's like he doesn't... He's altering his voice with machinery as well. There's no way he's just projecting that it, on, it on the rooftop. It, it was altered in post-production, yeah. so... Hopefully and they don't do it, that again. 
having had to do the Batman voice for weeks on end now, <laughs> for rehearsals and recording, it's exhausting. But to get a real performance in there, I found that I had to dial it back. Because if you just do this all the time, you sound like a wild animal. Which is great when you're trying to intimidate people, but when you're trying to relate to people, it's impossible. Which meant that Batman was kind of removed from the whole picture. He's difficult to relate to as a character in this, specifically. More so than Batman Begins, where you get a lot more Bruce and a lot more pain from Bruce. Yeah, the voice just st- stayed at the same level for most of it, especially, obviously, during the interrogation scene, where he's just like, where are they? Where are they? Where are they? All the time. Which is appropriate. Yeah. It's, it's context-appropriate for him to sound like that, but not when he's on the roof talking to Gordon and um, Dent. He should just talk like this and just be, you know, powerful and, uh, you know, charismatic with a deep, rumbling, threatening voice, but he doesn't have to sound like he's barely able to control his rage. <laughs> like Mr. Furious. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I am a ticking time bomb of fury. Um, and the other slight moment of, oh, Really? was Nurse Joker for me. Because I didn't, I didn't and don't find this remotely funny because of the context of Harvey's very real pain at the time and the seriousness of the situation that's going on around them. Um, but the ridiculous of seeing Joker in a woman's dress with a, an orange wig on, and then when he takes off his mask, he goes, Hi. Um, it's... I, it's it's not bad. I'm, I don't like like groan and smack my head, but I do kind of wonder like what, what were they? I mean, it could simply be that this moment, film needs moments of levity to actually pull it out of an extremely depressing pit. But there are other ways to do it than I tell you. Say Carruthers. Let's say what's very very funny: a man in woman's clothing. <laughs> Anyone want to defend Joker in Nurse Joker? I'm sorry, I do have to defend it. Largely because it's the one moment where your brain kind of stops being so bleak and so sad and so just everything's going bad. Joker's turn is a real manic. It's just a little bit, not a huge slice of just fun chucked in there. It's just a little bit of fun, especially when the bomb's going off at the end and he's kind of tottering off. Well, it was all going on. Yeah, and he's like tapping it and it's not working properly. Yeah. Yeah, that that I would say is a moment of levity, but the, the, yeah, walking into the room as the nurse and all the rest of it, I'm not so sure it is. It's 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 strange, but not necessarily funny. Well, yeah, like I said, I don't actually find it funny, but the audience around me laughed mainly because they needed it. Mm. Yeah. But, I mean, for me, the perfect way to hit humour points with this film is, is things like the dry humour of Lucius Fox. I found some irregularities. Their CEO is in police custody. No, not with their numbers, with yours. The whole division of Wayne Enterprises just disappeared overnight. I went down to the archives and I started pulling some old files. Don't tell me you didn't recognise your baby out there pancaking cop cars on the evening news. Now, you got the entire R&D department burning through cash, claiming uh, it's related to cell phones for the army. What are you building for him now? Uh, a rocket ship? I want $10 million a year for the rest of my life. Let me get this straight. You think that your client 
one of the wealthiest, most powerful men in the world, is secretly a vigilante who spends his nights beating criminals to a pulp with his bare hands. And your plan is to blackmail this person? Good luck. Keep that. That is the way you get human points across in this film, uh, in, in a way that, that, that's spot on for me. I, I, I don't want to sound like I'm complaining, oh, this is not funny, um, but it just it always struck me a little bit odd, the whole, I mean, it, it's the Joker, he's a little bit odd, yeah, I, but, but a bit kind of, look, we've got to put something in for the kids, could he maybe wear a dress? I always, I always <laughs> thought that scene was meant to be kind of creepy. Cause yeah, he is. I was going to yeah. say. Yeah. I suppose it's actually really effective in terms of the fact that if it was just the Joker coming in and being super serious, dressed as the Joker, and talking to Two-Face, then Two-Face would just go, oh, fuck this, and kill him. But the fact that he's dressed as a woman is kind of like a... It's not me. I'm a harmless little woman. He's, I'm, I'm going to make a point here. He's not dressed as a woman. He's just wearing a dress. That's not the same thing. <laughs> he hasn't done any work with his face. He is not a master of disguise like Sherlock Holmes in Game of Shadows, Indeed. oh, for God's sake. Indeed. But, um, but yeah, it's not much of a bum, though, but I've got to mention it. I'd like to say, you know, mark how good this movie is. We haven't complained about Eric Roberts. I quite like Eric Roberts. Yeah, but let's face it, he's not exactly... He's a smirking shit, isn't he? Yes. He's not known for his subtlety. Have you seen no. the Doctor Who movie? Is he the, the brother of Julia? Eric Roberts. His sister is uh, Julia Roberts, according to... Wiki. Eric's sister, yeah, yeah, yeah. Brother of uh, Julia. It's important to mention, once again, Michael Caine in this. His wonderful performance. And, again, a key part of Bruce Wayne's sanity and his grip on reality. With respect, Master Wayne, perhaps this is a man you don't fully understand either. A long time ago, I was in Burma. My friends and I were working for the local government. They were trying to buy the loyalty of tribal leaders by bribing them with precious stones. But their caravans were being raided in a forest north of Rangoon by a bandit. So we went looking for the stones. But in six months, we never met anyone who traded with him. One day, I saw a child playing with a ruby the size of a tangerine. The bandit had been throwing them away. So why steal them? Well, because he thought it was good sport. Because some men aren't looking for anything logical, like money. They can't be bought, bullied, reasoned, or negotiated with. Some men just want to watch the world burn. Oh, there is that one bit where he's talking to the mayor and the mayor walks over to the window <laughs> and the, the, the Batman wannabe slams into it in this incredibly, like, it made everyone go, oh, for fuck's sake, in the cinema. <laughs> that is and how you do a jump scare properly. Yes, absolutely. And, um... And it's, so, it's wonderful and terrible at the same time because not only do you get that horrible jump scare, which, by the way, also hurts like hell if you're listening to the score because there's a sudden spike. Um, you get the video, and that is so chilling. Like, beyond... I can't believe, A, that this is in a kid... A film that is going to be seen, was seen, by millions of kids. And, B, that they put that out on Gotham News. 
They haven't even figured out how to make Gotham News in widescreen yet. Tell them your name. Ryan. Are you the real Batman? No. No? No. No. <laughs> then why do you dress up like him? <laughs> He's a symbol. We don't have to be afraid of scum like you. Yeah. You do, Brian. You really do. Huh? Yeah. Oh, shh, 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 shh. So you think Batman's made Gotham a better place? Look at me. Look at me! See, this is how crazy Batman's made Gotham. If you want order in Gotham, Batman must take off his mask and turn himself in. Oh, and every day he doesn't, people will die. Starting tonight. I'm a man of my word. <laughs> Whoever's idea it was to make the Joker's face scarred into the smile, genius. Because it means you don't have to do the Jack Nicholson grin the whole time. Which must have been quite painful on poor old Jack. He was well compensated. My theory is that for the third Joker, because there's going to be one, um, when they reboot the Batman franchise, they may go for something more like the Mark Hamill performance. Because imagine trying to top Ledger's performance... Top Nicholson's performance and do something different to Mark Hamill. Batman Begins got 85%. That seems harsh. Dark Knight, 94%. More appropriate. Now, a lot of people that I know, I think Paul Shotton specifically, prefer uh, Batman Begins. And, I mean, it's a fantastic film and there's a lot of reasons to actually prefer it. In terms of tone, it's different. And if you like that kind of film more, of course Batman Begins is going to be more appealing. Then again, Paul's a big Heat fan, so mm, don't know. I think Mark Kermode also preferred Batman Begins. It's probably the scale. It's the feel, it's the feel and the scale compared to mm-hmm. compared to just like bleak, 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 bleaker, bleak, bleak and bleaker. Well, I think the bigger difference uh, between Batman Begins and Dark Knight is what I what I would say is that Batman Begins is a more tightly edited film. I feel like everything that's there needs to be there, whereas Dark Knight is a little bit self-indulgent in some scenes, but I don't care because <laughs> it's so good. Um, yeah, I, I think that would be a reason I'd say. Oh, uh, on uh, Rotten Tomatoes right now, they're reviewing bat movies. They've just done Mask of the Phantasm. Slow-ass Rotten Tomatoes. We did that weeks ago. <laughs> oh, they combined Batman Forever and Batman and Robin. They couldn't do it. <laughs> they couldn't do it. Just two <laughs> I feel vindicated, man. They also combined Batman and Batman Returns. Hmm, lazy. <laughs> <laughs>
Right, Batman's sacrifice. At the end, Bruce tells Gordon to tell Gotham that Batman killed everyone that Harvey Dent killed. So Batman wants the city to believe that he has violated his one rule and gone on effectively a kill-crazy rampage. Does that mean the Joker won then? Yeah, because the White Knight was murdered and martyred and the Dark Knight was vilified. Depends who his target actually was. If it was to corrupt the White Knight, then no, he hasn't won by them sidestepping it. Yeah. He hasn't won by the fact that Harvey's crimes were not made public. So he dies a hero, not a villain. Yeah. Although it's a lot, that's the thing that um, interests me about this ending is that what Batman is doing is basically fabricating the events that have happened in order to try and make the city the way he wants it, which is yeah. slightly devious when you think about it too much. Uh, yeah. Well, it's it's not too far off the Joker. It's manipulation. It's falsifying evidence. It's it's the opposite of justice. It's keeping things in shadow and not letting people know about it. But then again, Batman has to do that anyway. It's the lesser of two evils, though. That's the thing. Would you rather all of Harvey Dent's uh, convicted criminals go back on the street and everything goes back to the way it was before? Well, I mean... Surely they could pin it on someone else. Just say Zaz did it. (laughs) Zaz did it and ran away. Well, well, anyway... I think that's the thing. I don't think um, Bruce Wayne would make that decision, though. And he knows he's more than capable of keeping his distance away from the cops. So I'm going to take this hit for the team. Um, That's his role. And also, in some ways, I think it actually helps him if the criminal underworld thinks he's killed people. Like, because... Although he still yes, won't kill they people. said they actually said don't Joker matter. kills whoever he feels like it, um, but we know that you don't kill. There's no way they're going to acquiesce to your requests in favour of the Joker. It's like um, with Maroni. Maroni's not scared initially because he knows that he's not going to drop in to kill him. Yeah, which is what I said at the beginning. They're not scared of him anymore. Not like they were. They thought he was this elemental wraith, and it turns out he's just a guy in a suit. Plus. You got. There's also been the whole fact where the police themselves are. It's there's this build-up of tension between police and Batman because they've mm. got cops being killed because of him, and just before he's come to stop Harvey, he's been seen taking out the entire SWAT team. Uh, despite the fact that I'm, you know, saying, well, couldn't they get someone? Could they work their way around it in, other, in any other way? Melodramatic though it may be, it's a wonderful end to the film. It's so heartbreaking the way when he's smashing the bat signal when Batman is escaping, pursued this you know this creature that is unwanted, despite the fact that he's sacrificing everything for Gotham. He is you know being seen as a traitor.
This Saturday coming is the first annual Gonzo Planetary Expo. If you're coming, we will all see you there. The whole Gplex event, we will be raising money for a UK-based charity named GamesAid, very similar to Child's Play. They are behind charitable efforts into improving education, health, housing and social welfare, especially for children. And most of their donations take place within the video gaming industry. Now this may not work depending on the Wi-Fi we have available, but we are going to try to get a live stream set up. So keep your eye on Twitter and Facebook, especially around midday. The quiz at 3pm and the auction at 6pm, because if we're streaming, then you can see and hear what's happening and chat with us. We'll be recording at least one podcast on the day, which you'll be able to listen to in the next few weeks. And of course, even if you're not coming along, you can still donate. Jump on the main Gonzo Planet website and look for a link to our Just Giving page. Every penny will be put towards something positive and bigger than all of us. Remember to download Batman Breakdown and link it to as many people as you know love Batman. Like it and Gonzo Planet in general on Facebook, leave an iTunes review, tweet about it, link to the YouTube videos, get this thing listened to, because this has been equal parts exhausting and fulfilling for me and everyone else involved, and I want there to be demand for more. I'd like to thank my guests tonight, Joshua Gowdy of Canaan Rinse. Thank you. Neil Taylor of Gameburst and KDS. Justin Lynn for the win. And from Gonzo Planet, Jerome McIntosh. Paul Gibson. Thank you. Sharon Shaw Thank you And Akila Edwards Cheers We'll see you next week For The Dark Knight Rises The Joker I've seen the pictures That your makeup Was incredible What was that experience like Playing the Joker uh, It was it was awesome Yeah it was, it was the most fun I've had Playing a character Hands down And I think the movie Is, is gonna be Awesome Like I, I I'm very excited For it I haven't seen anything Nothing They're, they're so so conscious of it, like they, don't, they really don't want anyone to see anything. It's very secretive, and uh, but um, uh, just from what I've seen, like firsthand, and um, just from what I hear, I think it's going to, uh, I think it's going to be good.